Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word and our time together in it. Remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to James chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of James. James chapter 2. And we're going to get started this morning on verses 1 through 7. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You may be seated. When he was a student, the famous Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi actually considered becoming a Christian. And so he began to read the Gospels, and he was, he was actually moved by them. And it seemed to him that Christianity offered a solution to the caste system that plagued the people of India. And so one Sunday, he went to a local church. He had decided to see the pastor and, and ask for instruction in the way of salvation. But when he entered the church, which consisted of all white people, The ushers refused to give him a seat, and they told him to go and worship with his own people. Well, needless to say, he he left, and sadly, he never went back. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, then I might as well remain a Hindu. That tragic story illustrates the issue which James deals with in the passage we're looking at this morning. And it's important for us to remember the context in which this was written, and so let me just uh, brief, uh, briefly uh, uh, review where we've come from. Uh, in the last section of chapter 1, in verses 19 to 27, James was urging his readers to live according to the Word. And his point was now that you've been born again by the transforming power of the Word, you must live according to the Word, you know, allowing it to continue its divine work in and through your lives. 
And of course, this doesn't happen apart from the believer's own sincere determination and effort. And in verse 19 to 21, James said it begins with humbly receiving the truth of God's Word. So we have to humbly receive the truth of God's Word, but it doesn't stop there. Secondly, James told us that it must be acted upon. We must do God's Word. This is what James dealt with in verses 22 to 27, the fact that we must be doers of the Word. I mean, the real living faith to which believers have been born through the word of truth is a faith that both humbly hears what God says and then does it with a willing heart. Because genuine saving faith is an active faith. It is an obedient faith, a faith that we must put into practice in our daily lives. But in those verses, James also wanted to make clear that the doer of the word is not simply someone who is involved in in doing religious activity. Scribes and Pharisees did all kinds of religious activities, but they certainly weren't born again. There are a lot of people today who uh, have deluded themselves into, into thinking that because of all of their religious busyness and activity, that that somehow makes them a Christian. But true religion, pure religion, James says, that is biblical Christianity, genuine biblical Christianity, begins on the inside. It begins with a heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And that inner transformation, that new life in Christ, is going to express itself in outward behavior that is consistent with a genuine faith. It's going to be manifested outwardly by living in obedience to God's Word, reflected, among other ways, as we learned last week, by keeping a tight rein on our tongue, by sacrificial love and compassion and meeting the needs of others, and by personal purity, in other words, an uncompromising moral and spiritual standard in regard to the Word or the world. I mean, these are the things that mark the life of a true believer a true doer of the word. And now as we come to chapter 2, James' emphasis on being doers of the word is now further developed as he shows us in verses 1 to 13 that genuine faith does not show partiality. And in verses 14 to 26, that genuine faith always makes itself evident by practical works. And so his specific command in the last section of chapter 1 to be doers of the word is now followed by a command to avoid partiality. You see, even in the life of the early church, social, financial, and racial distinctions were already causing tensions and problems. And though we don't like to admit it, this is still a problem in the church today. I mean, because of remaining sin, we struggle with this. We, we tend to be partial to certain people because of their social and economic status or perhaps their education or their race or some other external fact or circumstances. And I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that to be partial or to show favor towards some people and to disregard others based on such outward factors, is a terrible sin. 
It's a sin that plagued the early church in James' day, and it's plagued the church in every generation. But loved ones, this should not be. This should not be. Because all men are created equal by God. We brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Before God, we cannot boast of our possessions or achievements, for all that we've done has been given to us by God, and God does not show partiality. He set the example for His people, and therefore, we're to follow in His footsteps. You see, the way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe. I mean, I think I said this last week, but people can say all they want. But the way you behave, your conduct, the way you live, that's the indication of what you really believe. So though people may profess uh, to be believers, practically speaking, they're atheists. In other words, they don't live out the Christian life. They don't live out what they profess. So the way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe. And we need to remember that in Christ, we are all one. Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, which is synonymous with Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we're all one. God does not favor one race or ethnic group over another. The same thing is true uh, regarding social classes. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all one in Christ. And this is the beauty of the church, isn't it? The church is is a people united not by their social or economic status or, or gender or their ethnicity, not by this or that artificial distinction set up in a particular culture or society, but a people from all socioeconomic statuses, ethnicities, male and female, united together as one in Christ. And so you immediately have this bond in Christ, and it's it's a beautiful bond that transcends any differences. It's a unity that comes from each person being in Christ. But this unity in Christ, this oneness in the body was being disrupted by those who were showing partiality or personal favoritism. And so in keeping with the theme of being a doer of the word and and true religion, true Christianity, in verses 1 to 4, James commands believers to not show partiality, sinful partiality. Let's look now at verses 1 to 4, beginning in verse 1, where James gives the command. Notice, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James again addresses his readers as my brothers, and in doing so, he is acknowledging them as Christians, as fellow believers. He's reminding them of the common bond they share in the family of faith, and he's underlining the intimate relationship that he had with them. And it reveals James' pastoral concern for them. He loved them. But though he loved him, many of the things he has to say in this letter sting. They really sting. In fact, they hurt. But you see, James knew that it was necessary. 
He knew they needed the instruction and the correction. He knew that it was good for them because it was vital for their spiritual health and well-being, for their spiritual maturity. So the admonitions, the warnings, and rebukes he gives are the faithful wounds of a friend, the faithful wounds, really, of a pastor. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones said of God, and it would be true of James and any faithful pastor, you know, we wound so that there might be healing. God wounds so that he might heal. And so James begins with the command, my brothers, show no partiality. It could also be translated, show no favoritism or no personal favoritism. And the word literally means to receive or lift up the face. It speaks of making judgments about someone. It's the idea of making an instant superficial judgment or evaluation of a person's worth based on nothing but outward appearances such as their position or possessions. And on that basis then giving them special favor and respect. Now, let me just say, tell you what James does not mean here when he's talking about uh, partiality and, and showing special favor and respect. He does not mean uh, that we don't show respect where respect is due. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't respect our elders. It doesn't mean if the church was completely full and uh, an elderly couple came in and there were some young people sitting right here, it doesn't mean that I might not ask them to give up their seat for these older people out of respect for them, out of deference to them. It doesn't mean you don't, uh, uh, as the Bible says, show uh, honor uh, to those who preach the word or to the elders. Uh, It doesn't mean you don't show respect to those in in political office. Peter says we're to honor uh, the king and those in authority. So it's not talking about showing respect where respect is due. This is talking about something that is sinful. This is talking about uh, judging people merely by outward appearances and then uh, on that basis alone, giving them special favor and respect to the disregard of of others. So James says, brothers and sisters, show no partiality. It's the idea of stopping an action already in progress. So apparently this was already going on. So he's saying, stop this business of of showing partiality. And it can also be understood as continually avoid the practice. So he's saying, stop what you're doing. Stop showing partiality, and I want you to continually avoid doing it. And we have to keep in mind that James is not talking to unbelievers about doing this in the workplace or in any other setting in society outside the church. He's talking to believers. He's talking to believers about their conduct within the church. And he says, stop it. Stop it. But sadly, it goes on. Sadly, we do this. I mean, we're prone to judge people by outward appearance, by what they look like, their clothes, their hair, where they live, what they drive, their their social status or position, you know, their their economic situation, their academic achievements, their their ethnicity, etc., 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 rather than by the inner attitude of the heart. What's even worse is that cliques are formed within churches based on these superficial outward appearances. 
Showing favoritism is ingrained in us. It's in our sinful humanness. But it's also absolutely inconsistent with being a Christian. A few verses later in verse 9, James makes clear that partiality is a serious sin. Look down at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so this matter of showing partiality or personal, personal favoritism based strictly on outward appearance, this is no small issue. The Word of God says it's a sin. And it's a sin that believers must be on guard against because it's often subtle and, and almost unnoticed. You know, God looks on the heart. The Lord said to Samuel as he was comparing the sons of Jesse, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I mean, God looks on the heart. God looks on the inside. God judges everyone on the basis of the heart. I mean, a person's soul is the issue, not their outward appearance. And we don't have the omniscience of the Lord to see the heart of a man, but as new creatures in Christ, we do have a new capacity to love and accept one another as Christ has loved and accepted each one of us. I mean, partiality is totally inconsistent with being a Christian. And it's something that the Bible condemns in a number of ways. It's condemned by the very character of God. In Deuteronomy 10.17, we read, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Using the same word as James, Peter said in Acts 10, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Paul said the same thing in Romans 2.11, For God shows no partiality. In Ephesians 6, 5-9, Paul specifically emphasizes that God is impartial in regard to social status, occupation, or a a person's being free or enslaved. And he told the believers uh, at Ephesus at the end of that passage, at the end of verse 9, that there is no partiality with him. There is no partiality with God. And so partiality is condemned by the very character of God. It's also condemned by God's word. He said to the people of Israel in Leviticus 19.15, You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. In Deuteronomy 1.17, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Proverbs 28.21, To show partiality is not good. Malachi 2.9, the Lord said through the prophet, So I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The New Testament is equally clear about the sin of partiality. To a crowd of unbelievers, Jesus said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
Peter affirms God's impartiality, reminding believers that you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Partiality was also condemned in the life of Jesus. During his incarnation, Jesus was the glory and the image of God in human form. And and like his father, he showed no partiality, which was something even his enemies had to admit. They said to Jesus, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. It's Luke 20, verse 21. And Jesus did not. He did not show partiality. When Jesus spoke to someone, it didn't matter uh, who they were. It didn't matter whether the person he spoke or ministered to was, was wealthy or a beggar or a virtuous woman or a prostitute or handsome or ugly or educated or illiterate or religious or irreligious, a law-abiding citizen or criminal. His primary and great concern was what was on the inside. His concern was with their soul. And Jesus calls people to himself without partiality. And so if they will put their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord, whether they're rich or poor, educated or illiterate, outwardly moral or grossly immoral, religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, makes absolutely no difference. And no doubt it is is partly for that very reason that we're told the common people heard him gladly. You see, the gospel is a great leveler. It's available with absolute equality to everyone who believes in the Savior that it proclaims. And so partiality is condemned by the very character of God, by the word of God, by the the very life of Jesus. I mean, the Lord deals with men with complete impartiality. And loved ones, if we have been born again, we're children of God, right? We've been born again, we're we're children of God. And if we're his children, we're to follow his example. I mean, we are to walk as he walked. And John said as much in 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Of course, walk is speaking about our, our, our life, our daily living. We're to follow the example of Christ in our daily living. And so we, now we can see what James saw. You know, throughout his earthly life, Jesus showed no partiality. He was never swayed by men's position or possessions. Yet here are those, here were those who professed to follow him acting in exactly the opposite way. And as we'll see, they were flattering the rich and and despising the poor. And as one commentator wrote, the difference between flattery and gossip is that gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face, while flattery is saying to his face what you would never say behind his back. (laughs) And in his letter, James condemns 
both of these for the specific reason that it's inconsistent with the profession of faith in Jesus Christ in whose life uh, these things were, were utterly devoid. I mean, his life was utterly devoid of these things. Partiality is literally inconsistent with our faith. Look back at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, or more literally, our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. Of the glory. And he might be referring to God's Shekinah glory. Uh, remember, James is writing to Jewish believers, so his Jewish readers would have been very familiar with uh, God's Shekinah glory. But the idea here is that we cannot have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who is the very presence and glory of God, and be partial. Because the two are not compatible. They're mutually exclusive. And being partial is in total conflict with our salvation. And so James is saying, in effect, how can you, How can you who are believers, who profess to be followers of Jesus, the one who, even though he was the Lord of glory, lived among men without partiality, totally unaffected by men's resources or social standing, how can you show partiality or personal favoritism? You see, James' readers were saying one thing and doing another. And that was something James could not tolerate. I mean, his great concern was that their belief and their behavior go together. And here was a situation in which this was not happening. I mean, this matter of partiality is a huge issue, much more prevalent than any of us care to admit. And it contradicts our faith in Christ, the Lord of glory. And it's not only sin, it makes a mockery of God's divine character. And so we need to ask ourselves, you and I, we need to ask ourselves this morning, does our theology make a difference? Does our theology actually make a difference? You know, do the words of Scripture and the example of Jesus, not to show partiality, actually have an effect on us? And so let me ask you, I mean, are, are you partial in your attitudes and actions toward people based on outward appearances? Are you quick to make superficial judgments about people based on what they look like, their clothing, their social status or position, their ethnicity, where they live and and what they drive. And too many believers draw quick conclusions about people based merely on what they first see or hear. They prejudge someone and and form an opinion before uh, they know anything at all about the person. Aren't we to love our neighbor as we do ourselves? And who is our neighbor? Anyone we come into contact with, right? 
In fact, love for one's neighbor, according to Jesus, extends even to those neighbors who are enemies. James now gives us an illustration, a specific example of the kind of partiality that God forbids. And although the example is introduced as being hypothetical, James' very direct confrontation of his readers in verses 6 and 7 would indicate to us that his hypothetical example was based on actual cases of discrimination against poor Christians going on in the churches he was writing to. And so here's the illustration. James sets the scene. Look at verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So we have two men, a well-dressed rich man and an awful-looking poor man who visit the assembly, and that word is literally uh, the synagogue. Later, James uses the word church, but here it's the synagogue. Because you see, among Jewish Christians in the earliest days of the church, the names church and synagogue were used interchangeably to describe the congregation of Christian believers. So the assembly here represents the church. And so two men, obviously on the extreme opposite ends of the economic spectrum, simultaneously visit the church as they're gathering for worship. The first man is wearing a gold ring. Literally, the text says he is gold-fingered, which indicates he was wearing more than one ring. You know, commentators tell us that in that day it was a, a common practice among the well-to-do, both Jews and Gentiles, to wear numerous rings on their fingers as signs of wealth and social status. And so as one commentator said, this guy had a gem at every joint, a nugget on every knuckle. He had the bling. James also tells us he was wearing fine clothing. The word fine means bright or brilliant. This is the same word used of the bright robe that Herod and his soldiers mockingly placed on Jesus before they sent him back to Pilate. It's used of the bright clothing of the angel who appeared to Cornelius as he was praying in Acts 10. And so from his gold jewelry to his expensive, bright, uh, elegant clothing, it was obvious this man was wealthy, no doubt, influential. And it was not common in that day for the wealthy and influential to show up at church. And so this man had everyone's attention. The second man was the exact opposite. We're told he was a poor man in shabby clothing. And the word poor speaks of being poor and destitute. It implies this was uh, the man's continuous state. And his clothing is described as shabby. And this word means dirty, soiled, filthy, you know, perhaps tattered. It's probably the only clothes he owned, and so that means he would have lived in these clothes, worked in them, uh, sweated in them. And these are the clothes he came to church in because it was all he had to wear. So he's poor, his clothes shabby, dirty, which not only uh, would have looked terrible, but he probably smelled bad as well. And it's important for us to remember that 
in the early church, uh, the vast majority of believers were poor. Some were poor when they came to faith. Others were poor after they came to faith because they were ostracized from their families and society. They, they lost their jobs and businesses or they were thrown out of the house without anything but the clothes on their back. But that's how precious their faith was to them. They weren't willing to compromise and so they paid the price. And so they were poor. But there were also a few wealthy in the early church, though relatively few. I mean, there were people like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the Roman centurion Cornelius, who was a prominent Gentile convert, was obviously a man of some means. And there's Barnabas, the woman Lydia, seller of purple fabrics, uh, many of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women, Acts 17, you know, converted there in Thessalonica, and no doubt others who... Uh, whose financial resources helped fund and support the apostles and the early church. But for the most part, the vast majority of the members of the early church were poor. And this is reflected by what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But back to our two men. The poor man would have stood out, uh, to normal people as exceptionally poor, just as the wealthy man stood out as enviably rich. The implication is that they were both visiting unbelievers, perhaps Jewish people who uh, had come uh, out of interest or, or curiosity. And the issue here is not in the rich man's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. That's not the issue here. Nor was the sin in the poor man being dressed in dirty clothes which looked and smelled terrible. Those things are not the issue. It's not about the rich or poor man. There's nothing necessarily wrong with being rich. There's nothing necessarily wrong with being poor. The problem James is addressing is the sinful behavior of those in the church toward these men. And so the two strangers arrive at the service at the same time. Now I want you to notice uh, the way they were treated the way they were greeted. Ushers and greeters, pay attention. <laughs> I'm only joking. Our ushers and greeters do a great job. Verse 3. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. In his illustration, James describes the members of the church as paying attention to the rich man. And the word attention here means to notice and to pay special attention to. It means to notice especially. And it, it implies not only sight, not only seeing, but, but mental activity, a mental evaluation. And so they especially noticed the rich man, and they judged him as someone deserving of, of special respect, as, as being someone to be honored. And so they scrambled over to the well-dressed visitor, offering him a good place to sit, perhaps one of the best places to sit. 
And this good seat apparently offered greater honor, access, and or comfort, or maybe all of the above. And so the rich man receives a very warm welcome and is, is immediately ushered to a good seat. And that in itself is not wrong. Then where's the sin? The sin is that the poor visitor should have received the same welcome, but he didn't. Look back at verse 3. You say to the poor man, on the other hand, you know, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. The poor man in in shabby clothing is, is barely even acknowledged. Instead, he's told to stand at a distance or or to sit on the ground at the feet of his host. In other words, will you just get out of the way? Go stand in the back. Or, Or sit here on the floor. In ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman society, hospitality towards strangers was treated with much greater seriousness than in our modern world. And being ordered to sit at the feet of your host, that was an extreme insult. I mean, this was blatant discrimination of the worst kind because it was not based on anything but what they judged about the visitor's financial resources based only on outward appearances. That's what it was all about. In fact, there were two evils here. Indulgence of the rich and indifference to the poor. Too much attention being paid to the attractive person and too little to the unattractive. I mean, why would you do that to a guy just because he had shabby clothes? Because there's something built into our sinful humanity that's partial to people who look good, smell good, wear all the bling, and are dressed in such a way that it's obvious they have money. And it is so easy to be guilty of that kind of thing to cater to certain people and neglect, even look down on others. I mean, churches can develop a sinful, elitist mentality. Let me read you what one commentator wrote. James' word picture, church history, and our own experiences chronicle the inconsistent tendency of vibrant Christianity to become discriminatory and to give favoritism. Money and economics is the principal medium for discrimination. Christians tend to listen more intently to the prosperous man, to defer to his wishes, to place him in positions of leadership. If he can run the bank, we think, he can lead the church. But money is not the only factor of favoritism. We also make too much of education. A man or a woman may not be rich, but if they are academically pedigreed, they are told, welcome to the church board. Similarly, if the person is well-connected within the Christian pantheon and has some evangelical nobility in his blood, there will come a knowing glint in the church's eye and a favored place. But then he said, no social register mentality ought to be found in the church. This, he said, was a problem in James' time, and it's a problem in today's church when the poor, the uneducated, the lower classes, the disabled, and the rich are not welcomed with equal enthusiasm. 
I read the story about a woman who lived across the tracks, across the tracks, and she wanted to join a, a more fashionable church. She had been attending there, so she went and talked to the pastor about it, and he suggested that she go home and, and think it over carefully for a week. At the end of the week, she came back, and he said, well, let's don't be too hasty about this. I want you to go home and read your Bible for an hour every day this week, and then come back and tell me if you feel you should join. She wasn't happy about this, but she agreed to do it. The next week, she was back, assuring the pastor she had read. She wanted to become a member of the church, and in exasperation, he said, look, I have one more suggestion for you. I want you to pray every day this week and ask the Lord if he wants you to come into our fellowship. The pastor didn't see the woman for six months, and then one day he just ran into her on the street, and he said, or he asked her what she had decided. She said, I did exactly what you asked me to do. I went home and prayed. And one day while I was praying, the Lord said to me, don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get into it myself for the last 20 years. <laughs> it's easy to be guilty of this as an individual and for churches to develop that kind of elitist mentality. God help us to never let that happen here. Because it's sin. It's sin. It's dishonoring to God. It's dishonoring to Christ. It's dishonoring to people. And it's implied in the illustration that these two men were not believers. But if they were, how much worse the sin to despise fellow believers in this way. Those who belong to the Lord of glory, who loves them every bit as much as he loves you and I. I mean, that kind of behavior is not Christ-like. God is not like that. And as the Bible bluntly puts it, to show partiality is not good. And as James says, it is a sin. After giving his readers a, a flagrant example of partiality, James now points out that partiality reveals a judging heart and behind it, evil thinking. Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Could be translated evil motives. The word distinction means to judge that, that there is a difference. So James says, you have not made, or have you not made distinctions? Have you not judged that there is a difference among yourselves? Well, I mean, to ask the question is to answer it. Certainly they made distinctions. Certainly they judged that there was a difference. Consequently, they showed partiality. They made a superficial evaluation of the worth of these men based on nothing but outward appearances. And as a result, they gave the rich man special favor and respect. But showing special favor to the rich man and showing discourtesy, if not absolute contempt for the poor man, is a serious sin. I mean, it's been said that the church must be the one place where all distinctions are wiped out. I mean, in the presence of God, 
All men are one. We need to remember that. As I said earlier, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Christians are all one in Christ. And in that phrase, one in Christ, there's a sense of equality as well as unity built into that phrase. We need to never forget that the church of Jesus Christ is truly a classless society. Loved ones, we really do need to examine our hearts to see if any of us are guilty of such sinful and shameful conduct. And I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of this kind of thing. I have. And it's discouraging and it's demeaning, to say the least. By showing partiality and making distinctions based solely on outward appearances, James asks, look back at verse 4, have you not then become judges with evil thoughts? Become judges. And the word James uses here is perfectly straightforward and, and the meaning is very clear. By their very attitude, these people had obviously set themselves up as having the right to pass judgment on other people in a manner that is plainly forbidden in the Word of God. As one man said, there was a deplorable arrogance in their attitude. You see, in the kingdom of God, it is never, and in the body of Christ, it is never right for a forgiven sinner to set himself up as a critical judge of other men's qualities and character. Because we can't see their hearts. Certainly, we can judge their behavior, whether it's sinful or not. We can judge their teaching, whether it's correct or not, whether it's false or not. But we can't judge their their character. We can't judge their heart. And James is going to come back to that subject of critical judgment later in chapter 4. But Paul speaks to this issue as well. He says in Romans 14, 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not that you be not judged, but with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it use it will be measured to you. Again, Jesus warned the religious leaders, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there is a judgment that is right. There is a critical judgment that is wrong. And to act as a self-appointed critical judge is sinful. We don't see the hearts of men as God does. To judge a man based on his outward appearance is to usurp the place of Jesus Christ in his glory as judge of all the earth. James says, you've become judges with evil thoughts or motives. And of the three words that James uses for evil in this letter, the one used here and in chapter 4, verse 16, is the strongest. It means vicious. Evil, vicious. So James says, uh, you you judge with evil, vicious thoughts or, or motives. 
You see, they placed more value on the soul of the rich man. Perhaps the reasoning here was, hey man, what what a coup this rich man would be. I mean, think what he could do for the kingdom. Think what he could do for the church. But the poor man, well, I mean, hey, that's another story. They didn't place much value on his soul. I mean, it would probably take years to get this guy up to speed if it could be done at all. You know, we need to give our attention to the rich man because that's going to be much more beneficial for everyone involved. These are evil thoughts, James says. Evil, vicious. And the obvious assumption in this partiality was that the rich man was considered to be morally superior or obviously smarter or more disciplined or more hardworking and thus a better man, you know, more fit for the kingdom. And again, this, of course, was based strictly upon his outward appearance. I mean, these are evil thoughts, James said. And James actually detests such thinking. In fact, he sees such partiality as an indication of a heart that at best is in need of spiritual help and at worst is a heart void of God's grace. And so he says to them, you're, you're, in doing this, you become judges with evil, vicious thoughts. You know, you're just like the sinful world. You're motivated to cater to the rich and the prominent and and to shun and to slight the poor and the common. And it's all calculated to gain your own selfish end. That's not Christian behavior. That's anti-Christian behavior. It's the carnality of the flesh. And it has absolutely no place in the people of God. Listen, if a judge in a court of law were to let his decision be swayed by superficial matters rather than by the essential facts of the case, that would be considered a gross miscarriage of justice. Well, loved ones, it is equally wrong for Christians to base their treatment of other human beings on such superficial matters as economic, social, or racial differences. It has no place in the body of Christ. Because in Christ, all these distinctions have been erased. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to finish up our time uh, in the Word this morning uh, there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. And the point we're making is that in Christ, the old distinctions that divided people of different social, economic, and ethnic backgrounds, they disappear. In Christ, they disappear. In this new life that we have in Christ, Paul says there in Colossians 3.11, here, speaking of this new life we have in Christ, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The categories Greek, which is synonymous with Gentile and Jew, divide people on the basis of nationality or ethnicity. 
Yet it's not one's ethnicity that makes him acceptable to God, nor does that make him a new man. Circumcised and uncircumcised divide people on the basis of religious distinction, such as uh, between those who have been circumcised, the Jews, and those who are uncircumcised, the Gentiles. And of course, as you remember, circumcision was the pride and, and distinction of Judaism, yet it gave the Jews no spiritual advantage because no religious ritual or ceremony can ever make one right with God. The terms barbarian, Scythian, uh, they divide people on the basis of cultural distinctions. Barbarian referred to the uncultured, uneducated masses. It was often used to describe all non-Greeks, you know, the unwise of the world. The Scythians were, were the lowest barbarians of all, you know, considered to be little better than savage beasts fit only for slavery. Yet, these are irrelevant in making men acceptable to God. And the final pair, slave and free, divide people on the basis of economic or, economic or social distinctions. Slave and free are social opposites. This distinction permeated the society of the ancient world. But you see, a person's economic or social status had, has no significance in the spiritual realm. And so Paul's point is quite simple. The ethnic, religious, cultural, social, and economic distinctions that divide the world do not exist in Christ. How so? Because in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Again, our verse from Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul is not saying, obviously, that Gentiles literally become Jews or vice versa, nor is he suggesting that slaves are no longer bound to their masters or that women are now men. I mean, these, these ethnic, religious, cultural, social, and economic distinctions don't automatically disappear. The idea here, uh, the idea here of oneness in Colossians is not sameness. Even in Galatians, Paul didn't call for believers to be the same, but for all to recognize that being one in Christ must take precedence over all other differences. Because these differences just don't matter anymore when it comes to our spiritual standing with God or the blessings and promises that we inherit from Him. In the body of Christ, ethnicity, former religious differences, cultural differences, Social and or economic differences, they're irrelevant. And there's no place for these man-made barriers in the church. Christ has torn down all of those things that separate us. Again, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're to recognize one another as equals. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand equal before God. And we're to be known by our love. And it's to know no ethnic limitations or cultural limitations or social and economic limitations. As I said at the beginning of the study, this is the beauty of the church. People from every conceivable uh, background and social standing 
all united together as one in Jesus Christ. And so there's that bond in Christ. That bond that that transcends any differences. It's not a, a socially, politically, economically, or ethnically manufactured unity. Rather, it's a unity that comes from each person being in the Lord Jesus Christ. All those differences are irrelevant. Why? Because we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, and that's what matters. We've been filled in him. We've died and been buried with him. We've been raised with him. All our sins have been forgiven. And these are all things that mark us out as God's people, not these other issues. These are the things that mark us out as God's people. And these things we share with one another. These things we share with all of God's people everywhere. And so Paul, like James, denounces all ethnic, religious, cultural, and social distinctions on the single ground that these factors just don't matter anymore because what matters is Christ. You know, we sang earlier, all I have is Christ. You know, implying that he's everything to us. Is he? I mean, is what matters most Christ? As Paul says at the end of the verse there in Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. And what he's doing, he's stating there in no uncertain terms that Christ is all that matters. He indwells all without distinction. He indwells all who belong to this new people without distinction. Because the only thing that matters is Christ. The same Jesus with whom we died and were raised now enables us to live as the new creations that we are. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that so that we can avoid at all costs the carnal partiality and personal favoritism that James warns us of in our text. And this is so basic and so important for all of us. As Paul began to bring the book of Romans to a close, he said in uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 5, Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So he's saying, be of the same mind. Accept one another with with open arms is the implications. There is the implication. Accept one another just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. And how did God receive us in Christ? He received us without respect of persons it wasn't based on who we were or who we are or what we have or anything we've done it wasn't based on anything he received us without respect of persons there was no partiality if we're saved it is by 
the grace and mercy of God and by that alone. The body of Christ worldwide is is going to be made up mostly of, of common people and a few uncommon. But God makes no discrimination between them and neither should we. And if you do, if you are partial, what James is telling us is that means you're not like God and you're not like Christ. But rather, James says in verse 4, you've become a judge with vicious uh, intent and your behavior is anything but Christian. And James could not be clearer This kind of partiality, this kind of uh, personal favoritism, or we could say this kind of prejudice is, is sin. And if there's one place where class distinctions have no, no place, it's in the church. Financial status, fashion, appearance, political persuasion, ethnicity, all these things need to be left at the door because it don't matter in here. Because in here, we are all one in Christ. And certainly God has established uh, order. He's established order in society. You know, we have those we're submitted to in society. We have order in the home. God has established male headship. We have order in the church. God has established leadership in the church. But when it comes to, to who we are as persons, as Christians, we all stand on level ground at the cross. We are all equal in God's sight. And all the differences, all the differences in in culture and society, all the differences in the world, those stay outside. They don't belong here. And James is going to warn us about the inconsistency of this beginning in verse 5, but that's for next week, Lord willing. So a lot to think about. A lot of self-examination. You know, self-examination should, should take place uh, every time we hear the preaching of God's Word, whether it's here or whether you're listening to a podcast. I mean, listening to sermons has almost become a, like a, a hobby. Where not a whole lot of thought is given to it. We just listen to it, and it's kind of entertaining, and We don't give much thought to actually doing what we hear. And we boast about how many guys we've listened to and who we've listened to, but I want to know is, has it made a difference in your life? Because James tells us we're to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only.
On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.